Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Leading Agile Sound Notes. So I have two very special guests who have joined me today. Michael Daly and Matthew Volpe from MLB are here, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that they're doing and have been doing with their Agile transformation. So gentlemen, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. Well, hey, it's great to be here. Agreed. So before we get into this stuff, um, I'd like it if you could each just talk a little bit about what you do so the folks get to know. Matt, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, my name is Matt Volpe. I am the program director for Apple and Android technologies at Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Uh, I run project management, general operations, um, oversee a staff of 12 PMs, uh, and pretty much uh, take care of anything that is not the coding itself. Uh, that ranges from the scrum mastery, uh, buying pizza, hardware, uh, vacation, resource management, you name it. If it's not engineers writing code, it's under my domain. All right. And Michael? Um, hey, I'm Michael Daly. I'm a program manager uh, with uh, Baseball Advanced Media as well. Um, everything that uh, executes in the uh, browser. I look at it a little bit different than Matt does. What I do is uh, I'm not responsible for knowing everything that all of my 13 people are doing. Instead, I really focus on working with each of them to get their process to be as exceptional as possible. And, uh, you know, as a secondary thing, really just trying to get the developers to be as productive as possible. So um, luckily, I've got a boss who's okay with that. Um, So I'm not all about the reports. I'm really about sitting down with people and coaching them throughout my week. Okay. And so just just one more thing on background. Can one of you guys briefly explain how MLB advanced media is a lot more than just baseball on the computer? Oh, sure. I'll, I'll take that one. Um, uh, so I like to describe baseball advanced media as uh, going through a process of uh, being kind of a mature mom and pop dot com startup. And uh, they realized uh, about uh, two years ago that they had all this great technology. Um, so they're now uh, kind of morphing into this uh, agency, uh, taking on uh, really a, a top tier list of clients. And uh, they're in the business of reselling this technology um, over and over again to uh, places like ESPN, HBO, um, WWE, PGA. Um, help me out, Matt. Give me some others. Uh, Fox Sports, Disney. Uh, Eurosport. Eurosport. Uh, Major League Soccer. Riot Games. There's a lot of, there are a lot of clients that are streaming only clients. I suppose one of the things we should probably say is that Michael and I project manage, uh, for lack of a better term, front end client software development, whether it be on web, Apple or Android. Uh, There's a huge behind the scenes business that deals just in media streaming and does not touch the front end client delivery piece. Okay. Of which there are probably 300% the number of people we build front end software for. All right. So, so it's much more than just, I just wanted to make sure we covered that. So thank you both for explaining that. Um, now you both just talked about the work that you do and you both use project management, but I know that you've both been part of this agile transformation. So can you talk a little bit about kind of how long that's been going on? And if you can also comment on the, the role that leadership plays in terms of the Agile transformation, because that was one of the most interesting things about the conversation that we had when we were discussing this before. So um, it was uh, 
so I haven't been here quite two years, but about two years ago at this point in time, I was actually interviewing uh, here and uh, a couple of things happened. I went home to my wife and I told her, man, I really, really, really want to work here because these guys really get me. I just really like uh, the culture and where they're coming from. Uh, the second thing was uh, they just asked me uh, flat out um, if I wanted to help in getting this place to be more agile because uh, they've kind of been slow to the game. Um, they realize that um, uh, uh, it's something that's uh, going to really help make things um, much more efficient and just create a better environment if they do it. But, you know, again, uh, when I mentioned that mom and pop way of doing things, they were still very much stuck in that mode. So uh, they made me an offer and I came on board and uh, they didn't really tell me this, but they uh, uh, just put me in charge of one team and my biggest problem at that time was uh these guys were so good uh i'm like why do you need somebody helping them out uh the one thing they didn't know though is that they were absolutely very insistent on doing scrum and uh after about a week i'm like you guys can't do scrum you're breaking your iteration you broke your iteration the first day uh you can't do that we're going to move into kanban so i started to get a feel for what frameworks were going to work here and this place because of the nature of the work and the nature of the product owners. Uh, one framework is not going to work uh, for all the teams here. Uh, about the time I came to that realization, uh, my boss, uh, Michael Hoffman, goes, all right, you've proven yourself not to be a total idiot running this team. I'd like you to apply that for the whole department. And that's when he gave me the opportunity to really start um, uh, working with everybody. Um, so what did I get? I got a boss who said, go over here and solve that problem. I'm going to get out of your way. And this has honestly been the best professional situation I've ever had because I've never had to explain myself. He's been very happy with the results and he's been incredibly supportive. So, you know, what I've seen here in this place is, you know, there's a, a certain time or place when things work and MLB has really had like the right environment to, to really have things grow. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the TPMs that are on my team are people that really want to get better and they uh, listen to what I've got to say and will challenge me when I haven't done a good job explaining it. Uh, the developers really want to do this. And uh, believe it or not, we've gotten like no pushback, which surprised the heck out of me from the product owners. When we explained the new framework, they were just like, oh, okay. And, well, and I think... Save that one, because I'm going to go there specifically okay. in a minute. But Matt, is your experience... Can you talk about your experience with this and how the role that leadership plays with you doing this stuff? Sure. So my experience was a little bit different. When I started here, so it'll be four years ago next month, the... I was included in a, in a daily standard. It almost seemed as if one person had gone to scrum training and uh, took back a very some some very kind of randomized bits. Uh, so at that point, the company the two, well, first of all, the company was much smaller. I mean, the entire department met for a morning standup. It was probably some of about fifteen people. We're pushing a hundred at the moment. So for purpose of scale, kind of test the frame. Uh, we then immediately went into waterfall software development uh, after um, after that stand-up. That was kind of the only thing that we did. We estimated, but it, not in a Fibonacci you know, point, whatnot. Um, they were open to it. I think that the organization wanted to do it, but uh, I don't think that there was the, – the, the voices that were trying to do it at the time were small. 
um, the first two years of me trying to kind of move this forward was kind of more small voices at the time. I was just a regular project manager. Uh, the organization kind of comes from kind of large corporate culture, at least from a, uh, a inherited standpoint. Um, and right around the time Michael showed up is really when the needle started to move. Uh, I think at that point, the agile transformation was some folks had done it successfully. There was some buy-in. There were more voices. Uh, and to me, we very much kind of went about it in a grassroots manner, which was really, you know, Michael and I both started to build teams along with a couple of other folks. And part of team building is, do you have a CSM? Have you gone to scrum training? Nope. Okay. Go talk to Dave. Uh, and, you know. <laughs> Little by little, uh, we've managed to get everybody through it. And now, um, look, it's not perfect, but when you have an organization of project managers, and I use the term loosely because it means a lot of things around here, but we have a, a number of them who've all got their CSMs, uh, it, it, the organics of uh, the culture tend to move you know, more towards the agile transformations. Product owners, I think, um, to add to Michael's point, I think they get on board eventually once they realize they get more and the teams are happier. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that there was resistance, but for me, the challenge that we had was getting everybody to document what they wanted in well-articulated tickets. You know, stuff used to be pages in Excel documents. The, the expectations were smattered about, right? And over time, we kind of distilled them down uh, the resistance was really about, it was really in the form of uh, trying to get them to all do the same thing, which is to put stuff in tickets. Um, from a leadership standpoint, um, they've kind of, to kind of sound off on what Michael said, they were really there all for it. You know, the, the great thing about this organization is that senior management cares about output effectiveness. And as, you know, managers of project management teams, we're more or less allowed to do whatever we need to do to be successful and to, to, you know, produce high quality output. And I think that we both kind of independently, but, you know, together at the same time have proven that this is what works. And, you know, once, as soon as they really saw that what we were doing was effective and they saw that, okay, well, it's happening in multiple places. Um, now, it, I mean, it's very hands off, but it's, it's very much, you know, what we're doing is uh, appreciated and, uh, and is uh, wanted by the, the powers that be. Cool. All right, so I want to try to put this in context for the folks that are listening because, um, and I'm going to go back to something, Michael, that you said a few minutes ago. When you started to talk about transformation, you said management realized they were late to the game. And if you're listening to the podcast, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to do this interview so much was that when, when we had dinner and we were talking about this, all the stuff that these guys were saying, I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. That never happens. Nobody ever says leadership supports us and the product owners are doing what we ask and they're always complaining about stuff. So that that's something that I definitely want to try to dig into in, in a moment. Um, but then I'd like to talk about some specific practices because there's also some stuff that you guys were doing that when you when we were talking about, I was like, ah, you should never do that, but it's totally working and I should shut my mouth if it's helping you get product done. So, um, so overall for me, this is a lot about just sharing with people the idea that this stuff does work and you can make it happen. Um, so now that you've talked a little bit about management being supportive and, and getting out of the way, do you know if that was a struggle for them? Is that just something that they just kind of took to right away? I mean, Matt, you were there in the beginning. Did that, was there a, like a letting go process for them? No, I don't think so. You know, to me, this organization has grown so quickly 
there are so many more, uh, you know, proverbial holes in the dam to fill than there are fingers to put in them. Um, when project managers started showing up and speaking seriously about about agile and, and you know, in my camp, Scrum specifically, you know, the fact that we were so passionate about getting folks trained and getting them on to this this uh, this structure that would net produce them a happier team with higher quality of output. Uh, I think that, you know, I don't think they really knew what they were signing themselves up for. I don't think they really knew what it was in practice. Um, but I think that the fact that we were that people were there trying to, you know, make things better, the, you know, and that this is the way that we were going to do it. Uh, you know, they were like, nobody was really in a position where they were going to get away with it. They were like, yep, more okay. or less go for it. And, you know, the way that things work around here is if you're successful, people continue to, the people will let you continue to do what you're doing. If you're not successful, somebody says something. Well, let's, let's talk about the product owners for a second. So, you guys have seen product owners or attempts at product ownership in other places. Um, I, I was honestly truly just psyched and surprised when you were talking about how pliable your product owners seem to be, but what is it about them that's making them more sort of able to adjust to this in this environment? I mean, I would say that I think some of it is we really aren't giving them a choice. Uh, we're trying to be, you know, kind and warm and aware of everybody's needs. But at the same time, uh, I should probably preface that with the fact that project management at, at this company is structured in that I work for the head of an engineering department. So does Michael. So while we wear lots of hats, we are principally aligned with the engineering entity and being an engineering company, that entity is graded on its output, right? So at some point, you know, the, the message, at least from my standpoint, was here's the thing we're going to do, right? It's called Agile. We know it works. Here's the role that you play. It's going to produce more output. And if you don't do this, it's going to be difficult because everyone else is going to be expecting you to do this. Um, so you're, if you don't feed the machine, the yeah. sausage is going to come out. Yeah, you've got some people that have seen this work to varying degrees of success other places. So that was an easy sell. And then you have other people that honestly are being asked to be product owners here um, that don't know what that means. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of uh, probably, I'm guessing, about 30 percent of what my team spends their time on helping product owners to be better around here. Uh, so... You know, again, we got some people who have been here 10 years and they have no idea what a product owner is or, or what that's supposed to be and what the, the professional path is. Uh, I try to get as many of those people to go to your class, David, <laughs> with varying degrees yeah. of success. Um, but we've got to work with them. And when we do that, I like to use the metaphor of, look, you don't do your kids homework, but it's totally fine to sit next to them and help them work through that. Okay, so you guys are you guys are helping coach some of them into this role when they need it. Yeah, we have to. It's um, uh, aside from the fact that you know Matt and I are just naturally really nice guys. It's in our best interests. Uh, if we didn't do that, it would be a real problem. Um, you know, I condense what my team's got to do down to pretty much one sentence. It's got to be absolutely clear to the team uh, what they're supposed to be doing today, and you know. 
probably 80% of that is making sure the stories are spot on. And if you don't have a exceptional product owner doing that, well, you know, you got a problem and you got to fix it. Okay. So you got to get a solid backlog there. Yep. Oh yeah. I think we have a bit of a leg up to, on, you know, we're fortunate in that Michael and I have been basically given carte blanche to get all of our people trained. We've got more people with more formal training thanks to you, uh, in what the correct way of doing business is. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, there's a strong undertone of lead by example, this organization. I mean, even our engineering directors get in the code, you know, quite often and show the folks who are less, less tenured, how it's done. You know, uh, the same paradigm exists with, you know, our folks who are, you know, agile professionals showing the folks who are still, you know, understanding how things work. It's not doing it for them, but it's, you know, I'll write the first story for you. I'll show you what the engineering team wants when you're composing a requirement in the form of a story. Right. And like some folks take the the amount of handholding that needs to take place, I think varies, but at the end of the day, uh, everybody gets it. Okay, cool. So I want to ask you guys a, a training question. I'm going to try to not ask a lot of questions about the training and, and I'm going to ask you to answer this completely honestly. So forget about the fact that it was me, um, which I'm grateful that you sent so many people to the classes, but if folks are listening and they're thinking about having their people trained, was it beneficial to have them all trained by one person? I don't know if you had anybody trained by other folks or not, but did that help them stay in sync? Do you think? I had one one person tra- not trained by you, and that was just based on time and, and geo. Um, uh, so when a one out of ten, I mean, she's also a fairly, you know, competent individual. So sure. I don't know that that is true. But what I will say is that you know, you being the resident power of agile that you are, Dave, certainly. <laughs> has helped us been able to say, look guys, it's not just like we're going out and getting, getting our folks trained by anybody. Yeah. Like I think that Michael and I, or at least I agree with everything that you say, um, at least in principle. So having all of my people trained by you certainly make sure that it helps me know that when they come back from training, they're going to get the message that I want them to okay. have got. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I uh, really like uttering the following sentence. Okay, you've been with me for 90 days. I'm going to send you off to the same guy that trained me back five, six years ago when I was, you know, coding in stone knives and bearskins. So I really like saying that. Uh, But I think that, yeah, there's a little bit of a problem, um, I guess, somewhat like the Irish potato famine, that you don't have enough diversity here, but you need balance that against quality trainers. And uh, I've got a really high uh, level of expectation about what I want my people to come back with if I'm investing two days of their time in, in that money. And and I know that, uh, you know, in all honesty, the quality you're going to deliver is going to be great. Um, additionally, I like the fact that we've all of a sudden got the same uh, lexicon that we can use and are familiar with the same tool set. And uh, definitely the mindset is spot on. I'm really sending them at the end of the day because some people are like, look, man, I'm doing combine. What do I need to get CSM for? And I'm like, <laughs> "It's your mindset's totally going to change. Yeah. And, it, and that's been the case, interestingly, uh, with some of the people that – Honestly, we're a little skeptical with what I was doing for the first like six months. They come back and all of a sudden they go, oh, now I'm starting to see it. So okay. I think it would be good maybe to get, do the diversification, but I think it's hard to really pick up 
reliably what you'd be looking for in that here. Yeah, see, I, I'm on the fence about it because I think that I can see where as a manager having everybody trained in one place, they get that same message, they have that same language, but the diversity is really important too. So, um, The one thing I do do is, the, uh, with the exception of one case with this person that was getting so excited about applying Agile principles, I'm like, okay, you got to go now. But I'll give somebody 90 days where I kind of show them where I'm coming from and get them a, an idea for the problems they've got to deal with that are specific to this organization. Then I'll send them off to you. Okay. Uh, that seems to work really well. Uh, also, to have them isolated from the rest of the team and kind of pondering this kind of like on their own as a retreat seems to work really well, too. Okay, cool. Thank you. I so- do think we also get some diversity from the fact that not everybody that works for me has gone to your training because I hired them with a, with a CSM. Okay, right? yeah. They practice Agile somewhere. Else. I still send those people to Dave. I you should do that, yet. too. Interesting. Send yeah. everyone. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk about some specific practices. So I know that when we talked at dinner, um, we talked about calibra- calibration exercises and normalizing because that was something that, that you guys have in place in some you know aspect. And, and you've already said that Kanban is better for some teams and you know Scrum's working for others. How do you guys decide who's going to do what and when you're kind of wandering away from the sort of the scrum reservation. Is there any kind of governance going on there? I'll answer this one because Matt's making a face <laughs> right now. Uh, so at the end of the day, I expect each of my, uh, you know, uh, project managers to uh, select a framework that's going to be uh, best for their team. Uh, there's two that um, are kind of like the starting points. One is scrum. The other's Kanban. But no matter what your starting point is, uh, I expect you to go through and tweak that very heavily to whatever's going to work for, for you as you uh, learn stuff. Uh, so, what are the general rules for where you start out? Well, if you um, have only one product owner, uh, who is a very organized person and who can fill up your backlog with, let's say, 30 to 60 days worth of stuff, then man, you can totally do scrum. That is awesome. If on the other hand, you've got stuff that's coming to you sometimes with 24 hours notice, uh, you're going to be breaking your iteration if you're doing scrum. Um, and for those who go, well, let's try to do everything in a week. Um, I can tell you right now, that's really hard to do and you probably shouldn't do it unless you've got a really, really, really good reason. Uh, then you got to go with Kanban because, you know, you don't have that event horizon that you can plan against. So we, we kind of um, make our choices, at least initially, uh, based on uh, the organizational ability of the product owner and just how much you can predict what's going to be coming at you. And then we go from there. Uh, as far as uh, how that evolves over time, well, remember when I kind of introduced myself and I talked about how I see my role as being a coach, I talk with everybody on my team for at least um, 30 minutes each week. If you're brand new to my team, uh, you'll be talking to me every day. So there's a lot of back and forth. I personally really love the academic discussions about what's going to work and what isn't. And right. so to me, this I'm kind of building the best job ever. Uh, but we do that and it's supposed to evolve. Uh, and we just 
figure out what works and we share it with the team and what doesn't work. Well, we put that aside. Okay. And Matt, what about for you? So since you're, since you're making a face, while I give my people the liberty to decide, they all inevitably more or less either decide or otherwise fall into the same bucket, which is that for a period of time, when a new partner comes on, before that backlog is really built, before we've got a solid roadmap, people are, we're, the, the metaphor I like to use is while the cement is still drying, people uh, tend to just run Kanban, right? There's not enough to fill a two-week sprint. To Michael's point, it doesn't make sense to go through the, all the ceremonies for only a one-week sprint. Uh, so people tend to Kanban through tasks for a period of time, call it 30 to 60 days, Okay. Uh, and then at some point, the a project will start to get its footing. The backlog starts to build out a little bit. Um, and then that tends to be synonymous with when folks cut over to Scrum and start creating two-week sprints. I think the reason that we end up doing that is that, you know, the thing about mobile software development, specific to mobile software, is that you package up this bit of software, you give it to Apple, you give it to Google, you know, every release gets a Viking funeral right? You send it loose. You, there's <laughs> nothing you can do to get it back. I think that uh, that forces a certain level of, uh, I don't want to say quality, but um, the process, the operational overhead into fixing an issue, uh, shipping an update is such that uh, you really need to, I don't want to say put walls up, but define the scope of what you're going to be doing. Uh, commit to it. When you're done, you ship it, and then you work on the next thing. Um, to us, the two-week sprint and really declaring, saying, okay, guys, okay, product owners, QA folks, whomever, uh, and even to a certain extent service dependency groups, the sprint starts on this day, and here it's in the top of the backlog. Do we have everything we need to package that thing up and put it into development? And over time, once people start to acclimate to the process, they realize that sprint start is the date that things all need to be buttoned up, my decisions need to be made for that two-week cycle, and, and it all goes. Uh, and hopefully... If, if everything's been done correctly, you know, that two week sprint moves fairly nicely because nobody gets stuck because we, we've, we've called everything out before we've started that. And it to a certain extent insulates the development effort. Well, anything that comes up after that naturally just, if it's super important, just goes into the next sprint. We've got those next two weeks to form the next one. Um, we don't ship at the end of every release. Uh, we don't ship publicly at the end of every, of every sprint, rather, um, but we do distribute widely and internally through the organization. It goes into QA, it kind of it gets its full vetting, um, and then uh, usually two to three sprints worth of work gets packaged up and actually go public. Okay. Now, do you guys both work with stable teams, or are you, it sounds like you do, but I just want to check on that one. Um, that's interesting. You should bring that up. I'm kind of going back and forth with my boss on this one. Uh, he's a little bit more of the old school opinion where it kind of like breaks teams up and loans out resources. I'm not a big fan of that. Yeah. Uh, I'm working over time to get to see things my way, but, uh, you got to pick your battles. I would like to see things and we're not there yet. We're about halfway there. Uh, we've got, I know I said I got 13 children, but as far as development teams go, we probably got about 18 at this point because a senior person can actually manage two of our teams. They're pretty small. They tend to be about five developers each. Uh, so I would like to, uh, you got two choices. You either, um, uh, have, uh, uh, 
you know, these particular projects and you move people in and out of them. And uh, that project, which lives or dies, it, it's very clear um, what they're working on. Or you can have um, stable teams, and sometimes it'll get a little weird. I like to talk about gerrymandered responsibilities where, uh, you know, you might kind of split things. Part of one website or one web page goes to one team and another part goes to another. Uh, I would prefer to have the gerrymandered responsibilities and the stable teams. Uh, the developers seem to like that, too. Uh, but, again, I've got to move towards that right now. Um, so does that take so extra effort, does it take extra effort to cope with that like are there are there tips that you could offer to either of you could offer to somebody in another organization if they if they can't get to stable teams yet like what what are the tricks to making it work well if you're moving to stable teams the biggest problem i've had to deal with is somebody needs work to be done by my department they're like who do i talk to and it's like, I don't know, going into some village up in the Himalayas with no addresses or nothing. You're, if you're new to that place, you're never going to figure out how to get anything done. So uh, what we do, and by the way, I stole this uh, from uh, Spotify when I interviewed with them, is um, I designate for the bigger project somebody called a road manager. And the road manager is somebody who's already a TPM on my team. And their job is to be the person that everyone goes to for a particular project, like, I don't know, PGA. And that road manager will then either make sure the work gets done themselves or will say, go and talk with that person and they'll take care of you. At the end of the day, the road manager has two responsibilities. Uh, when somebody says, hey, how's um, you know, uh, Major League Soccer doing? I'll be like, hey, talk to this person. I don't know. But they can absolutely help you out. Uh, number two, they've got a big, uh, uh, good enough understand the project that they know that everything that's being required of our department is being handled by somebody, so nothing's getting left on the floor. That's really the only way I can find to do that. If you've got this crazy configuration of teams, I think it's really unfair to just ask people outside of it to figure it out. So this is kind of a hack that I've been working with, and uh, I've been doing this now for like a year and a half, and it seems to work pretty well with us. So if you don't have stable teams you've got a stable person that everyone can know this is the guy you talk yeah. to he's your radar mm -hmm. o'reilly basically yep okay okay cool in my camp we do it similarly but i think we're slightly more evolved in some in some aspects so for properties product rather project verticals that are big enough to necessitate from an economic and backlog size dependency a stable team we stand up a stable team so it's a project manager and which is also the scrum master who's um kind of the single point of contact akin to michael's road manager we then have somewhere between six and 12 engineers that work through and facilitate the engineering efforts for that um we more or less have one of those cohesive units. Well, and there's also we've got a QA manager or a QA, a QA point person, and then hopefully a product owner um, in there. Um, that entity represents a stable team for our big initiatives, of which we probably have about ten. For everything else, we have another stable team that's kind of a catch-all. They 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 capture. They kind of round robin through all of the various work that isn't. Isn't, doesn't really necessitate long-term iterative development. Uh, it's kind of maybe one and done, you know, do this tiny little thing on this app and, and then go on to the next thing. Um, we call that the other group. Um, and, 
like from lost others, the others from the other side uh, of the they island. Are a stable cohesive unit, uh, but what they're working on is not stable. Okay. All right. Now I want to ask one more question. Thank you for both for explaining that because that's one of the things that um, a lot of people ask about. They're like in class, like I can't get to stable teams. What what should I do? I'm almost like get to stable teams. Like <laughs> that's, that's yeah. what you got to do. It, no, um, but it, it's it's hard. You know the thing. It, unfortunately, uh, engineers uh, and and others of the like are particularly expensive. So if you're working on a lot of things, you know stable teams takes a a fairly significant amount of, of you know investment in human capital from a management standpoint. Um, well, okay, me, but so so let, let, let me debate this with you for a second. Gotta, that's got to make sense before you can get into stable teams. If I have a stable team, I could put that stable team to work on multiple different properties or projects because that group of people, if they were tight enough and work together long enough, they can handle anything. That is absolutely true. Okay. Um, all right. So I want to ask one more big question about how you're both doing this. And, and I know you're, I believe you're doing it differently, but my notes, when I look at them from when we were talking before, give me a seizure every time I look at them. It's a, I, I would like to know about how you're dealing with estimation and how you're looking at that across the portfolio. But my note says making an assumption that a team member can do 10 points per sprint, one point oh, per yeah. day. Volpe did that. Which makes That's me want me. to seize up and to have a thing. So how's it, I, but I know it's working. So can you talk about how that works? Yeah. So that, that whole 10 points per person per engineer thing is really a baseline. So, okay. so I guess to frame the conversation, we do story point, we use Fibonacci um, and we, uh, we take on a certain number of points per sprint uh, as you are supposed to. What we don't do, and this is what gets you to seize is the 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 story the single story point normalization exercise okay we have tried and failed uh in a number of places to do that because folks have a very very hard time disassociating the the unit of measure that is a point from the unit of measure that is an hour a minute or a day right sure so my approach has been okay you're a team of four engineers start by taking on 40 points in the first sprint see where it gets you. Do you finish over? Do you finish under? Okay. okay. And then again and again and again. So the total 10 points per engineer per sprint thing is really just how I, how I, it's how, how you I came tell up that with your standard. How, it's how you establish on baseline velocity before you understand what that team is capable sure, of. Sure. Sure. Uh, the, 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 the velocity per sprint, um, or the size of each sprint, rather, in measure of points, tends to, or rather, is adjusted after the team actually figures it out for themselves. Some four-point teams do 65 points. Some four-point teams do 30 points. And to me, what I'm not doing is taking all 12 teams and rolling them up and say, okay, what's my total throughput? What I am doing it is to make sure that that dedicated team remains on its course, right? If it's been producing 35 points worth of work, per sprint and this sprint is either 60 or 20 i know that there's something i have to look at there right because they're out of whack with themselves Um, how that correlates to another team is currently not something that we really measure in any meaningful capacity mainly because there hasn't really been a need to do so okay so before michael before you comment on i want to just point out a few things about what what matt just said for the folks that are listening so the one thing I would normally in a class like freak out and say, no, if you're going to do time, just do time, leave points, be points. But 
you came at that. You tried to do it a couple different ways. It didn't work. So you did take an empirical approach to trying to figure out if you could work with story points in that manner or not. It didn't work. You found a way that does, but you really did just set a baseline for your team. A point for you is X number of you know amount of work per guy per sprint, right? Right. Except they never actually say it that way. And I say it that way on purpose because I, I strongly try to discourage people away from uh, like a, a point is a day, for example. Okay. Even though if you do the math, look, it's not rocket science. I and mean, that is more or less what we said. Um, but the truth of the matter is when you start everybody at 10 points a sprint and a sprint is two weeks, yeah. you'll find that, that that number is generally low uh, and the team will work their way up. Um, it usually works out to be somewhere between 15 and 20 points. Okay. You know, and are they, per engineer, are they uh, tasking sprint? Um, but again, that number is very much a function of the team and how that team has decided to point and how, you know, what the relative complexity of any given task is. Are they tasking work out in sprint planning? No, in a perfect world, they're doing it in backlog grooming. So what I tell my people to do is take 30 minutes to an hour of every day, sit with the product owners and chip through the top of the backlog and point in the backlog. Sprint planning ideally is just, you know, you're pulling on the top of the backlog that is, you know, the equivalent of the number of points that that team knows that they can complete a two-week period and push and go. Okay. That doesn't always work in practice, mainly because it is a bit laborious to get for the for the CSM or the PM to get everybody in that room for that 30 minutes, an hour, hour a day. Um, usually it ends up being a little bit of both. It's you'll suck 30 or 40 or 50 points from the top of the back backlog in and then whatever's not pointed tends to just happen on the fly and in sprint planning. Okay. All right. And Michael, what about you? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I guess I want to start things out by saying two things. Uh, number one, uh, we're not very good at forecasting, at least is not as good as I think we should be yet. Uh, I know that's something that we need to get better on next year. And number two, I absolutely hate pointing meetings. They're the hardest ceremony to do in scrub. I wanted, I wanted to shoot myself in the head, uh, and, uh, you know, when I do them, especially with the new team. Oh my God. I'm sure we so can just trade stories why? about that. Well, because getting consensus is a real pain and uh, just getting agreement on what a point means. So I teach uh, the starting point for uh, what a point is a little bit differently than what Matt does. Um, Now, remember, I have people that come and go on my team, so I've got to be able to get them up to speed pretty quickly there. So I've decided to um, describe that to people uh, in terms of ideal engineering hours. So I won't go into what that is, but that's kind of our baseline uh, that we used to point, plus unknowns. Uh, And I know you also like to add in difficulty, but to me, that's the same thing as unknowns. Okay. Uh, So when we're pointing, we tend to do it that way. Now, I've recently uh, become more of a fan of pointing, uh, and it's because, uh, and not for the forecasting elements of it. When you do Kanban, uh, the way you do it is you just count the number of stories, and you're able to forecast that way. And and that's pretty accurate. I've got numbers from when I was at uh, NBC that shows that number of stories is pretty consistent, uh, lined up against points. So that's pretty good. But uh, there's some stuff that pointing I found in the teams have found get you regardless. Uh, number one, it, it forces a conversation. 
where everybody is aware of what's involved in this story. And it's great for cross training. We've got all these different properties we work on and some teams have got, you know, multiple properties that they have to deal with. So that discussion that's forced by pointing so people get the uh, consensus is really great. It's great to have some sort of number that you can have a discussion then with the product owner about level of effort because then they might decide, well, I guess that wasn't so important to me afterwards if it's going to take that long to do, which is a great thing to do. And uh, the last thing, and this is a problem I found with Kanban, is that you never really know if a Kanban story is its final uh, add a, uh, whatever composite or the, the smallest story until the team starts to execute on it. Quite often, they'll start to break that up once they take it on. Um, when you point a story, you can be pretty sure that that's the right size. And uh, even though, look, you're still going to have surprises, the likelihood of that is much less. And, you know, the last thing is that once the story is pointed, it's kind of like the USDA certification that, yeah, this is a good enough thing that the team's going to be able to make it actionable. So um, I think there's a lot of value there when you do that. Um, again, because we sometimes add a lot of work at the last minute forecasting becomes difficult but those other things i talked about i think really give a lot of value to things so as long as you're not taking um you know uh, 25 percent of your sprint to talk through your stories I, I think that there's a lot of value there okay and do you guys have to look at all the different work being done across the portfolio and if you do how do you do that if everything's being pointed differently um, I don't have to do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not the way you're thinking. Okay. Not, I mean, I, I think I do it a little bit more than Michael does, but not, not at, at the level of granularity of, of every, of every story point, right? Okay. The things that I'm paying attention to are really the epics. Uh, and you know, for us, look, we work in the, in the media distribution business. Most of our clients are media brands. So yeah. there is inevitably a Super Bowl, a Game of Thrones premiere, a WrestleMania, a Major League Baseball All-Star game where we're trying to land a plane that is a particular epic uh, down before that event starts. So the things that I pay attention to are where those big epics are and how are they tracking against those tentpole events as we refer to them here. Okay. Uh, also being the resource manager, if I see one looks like it's going to land past the runway, we tend to throw bodies at the problem. That's what that other team also does, by the way. They kind of function as a bench for me. So that if I do see something tracking behind, um, that's what they'll do. How I use points to do that is I'll just look at the epic and look at all the stories underneath it and look at the progress of everything that's in that epic and see look, see what the trend line looks like. And if it looks like it's running a little long, then that's usually the siren for me to go and dig in further. But it's again, it's on an as-needed basis. Okay, cool. So <clears throat> I really appreciate you guys talking about this stuff. There's, there's some of the things that I know that you're doing or maybe – Maybe a little bit out of sync with the way some of the practices are defined, but they're but they're working. And and that the thing that I think is most important that I hope folks take away from this is that it's a trial and error to find the best way in any organization to make this stuff work. So uh, I, I really appreciate you talking about this, and hopefully it's given some of the folks who feel like this can't happen some hope. Um, I do want to ask you each one more question, the last question of the interview. For somebody who is at a company where they feel like, oh, we can't do it. Oh, they're not letting us. Oh, my product owner doesn't know their job or management doesn't support us or whatever it is. Um, what advice do you guys have for them? 
Well, when I'm talking to somebody and they're like, I want to have this happen and uh, I don't know how to get it to happen. They're not supporting me. Um, one of the best ways I've found of motivating people uh, outside of just my charming personality <laughs> is you, you, you try to frame things in terms of what's in it for them. Okay. So if you can approach it that way, uh, you've got a chance. I'm going to say additionally that if you can get some support to give it a try, uh, you have a very high likelihood of uh, creating a situation that uh, everybody is really going to like. Um, it's hard to attract um, technical talent if you're not agile. Uh, so, you know, that to me is a pretty compelling argument right there. Although I would say you shouldn't be like the last place I worked and you can check out my history if you want to. They just kind of said they were agile, but they really weren't. Uh, There's actually a couple companies out there that do that. (laughs) Yeah. So they want to, they tell that to the developers and then they just lie. Uh, but, but yeah, I would say that you start with what's in it for them and kind of go from there. Uh, to, and to me, what's in it for an organization, you're going to be able to attract better people. And my personal feeling is you create an environment, which most of the time people are, kind of looking forward to coming in each day. I mean, it's not going to be every day, but you know what? I got a lot of people that are really pleased and, um, not to brag, but since I came on board, I've had no turnover, uh, with my TPMs. That's awesome. And very, very little with a, uh, uh, developer pool of 90. I think I've lost less than three, four people. And in this kind of business, that's a huge deal. For two I'd years. say that just pretty much says everything right there. Yeah. Cool. And what about you, Matt? What, what, what is your advice for folks who are stuck? So I think the best thing you can actually do is to start doing it. Um, so, you know, but you, I mean, obviously there's, there's a little complexity to that, right? So number one, right, Michael nailed it. What's in it for me? As a CSM, as the person who's trying to drive the ball forward, you need to first and foremost align yourself with the people that are producing the output. To us, it's software engineers, uh, the people who are actually doing the code, the, making the proverbial sausage. Sure. Um, align with them, befriend them, make sure that they understand that you know you're you're in the business of trying to make their lives easier to, and to smooth and facilitate their process, right, and and then their day to day. Uh, so step one, get their buy-in, right? Doing so makes you in theory, the single point of contact for any requests that need to be done or meet that are being made of that team. Okay. If the team's got back. If someone goes around you, if someone does is not following the process and goes directly to one of these engineers and says, Hey, I want you to do X, Y, Z that those, those individuals should point back to you and say, you got to go talk to Matt. You got to go talk to the CSM, yeah. right? So buy-in, right? Second thing is make that list known, right? Oh, sorry. What I didn't say first is start with Kanban because it's way easier to get off the ground with Kanban. Okay. Start with Kanban, get buy-in, and throw it up in a place where everybody can see it, right? Hiding what a team is working on is not going to help. Making it super visible is actually the most important. This way, anybody who's coming in and saying, hey, I want you to work on X, Y, and Z, you can say, okay, well, Here's what my backlog looks like, right? Here's the first in. Here's here's the view of the tasks in the log, right? Yeah. Here's everything I'm working on right now, right? You're being asked to be put in here. You, hey, you know, 
Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so person making this, this request. Let's go talk to Jim, because in this hypothetical, Jim is the person who's got slots two, three, four, five, and six in my backlog. And, you know, you, you kind of have to be the referee and let Jim talk to you, the product owner or the, the, the stakeholder of the first person you're driving or the, the person who's got the first thing in, in your backlog, second or third, whatever your backlog, to negotiate whose is more important, right? Um, you do that long enough and people start to realize, okay, like you're, you're this individual, you're managing this queue, you, the, the queue is adaptable based on what is the overarching priorities and you kind of have to handhold and I don't use the word force, but you have to, you have to coerce people into talking to each other about understanding what this team should be doing, uh, you know, in, at a broader business level, not at a personal level. Okay. Uh, the other thing is, you know, always advocate for your resources. You have to make sure that your people, okay, well, if, your if people, you're, if, this team, if you're doing all of this and people are continuing to make sure that you're not getting there, well, okay, go find out who staffs that team, right? Advocate to make sure that that team is big enough. Cause at some point the, if people want more than that team can produce, you're never going to get there, right? People are never going to see that it works. Right. And don't call them resources. Call them people. Yeah, I That's got true. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, guys. Thank you. I really appreciate you doing this. This was great stuff. Um, and hopefully the folks who have been listening taken some hope from this, which is something that is often in short supply when people are in transformation. So. Um, I really appreciate you both talking about this. If folks want to get in touch with you, can you each um, provide some kind of information where they can reach out to you? Uh, sure. Honestly, they can email me directly, michael.daly at mlb.com. Okay. Thanks. And Matt? Same here. It's uh, Bolby, uh, B is in Victor, O-L, P is in Peter, E at mlb.com. Cool. It's Italian for Fox. That's all you have to it know. Is Fox. <laughs> all right. So I'm, I'll be sure to include links for this, guys. Thank you very much. And I hope you have a happy new year and happy holidays as well. All right, David. Hope we see you when you're back in New York again. We will. All right, Thanks, man. David. Bye. Thanks. Bye.